0: This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. This morning, Father, we recognize this morning that you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. So we come humbly before you and with open hearts and minds strive to do just that. We pray, Father, that during this time you would be pleased, and afterward, Father, that you would be pleased by our words, our deeds, and our lives, Son. Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you for loving us enough to come for us, to live, die, and rise for us. On this second Easter Sunday, we continue celebrating your victory, which is also our victory. And Spirit, we're grateful this morning that you live in us and that you lavish grace upon us, that you guide us and that you bring us together around the thrones of the Father and Son. We confess that although we're physically distant from one another, that you are the one who gathers us this morning. Indeed, you are the one who gathers us every morning. So God, move among us today in a mighty way, and we pray and ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So (laughs) I was wondering, have y'all heard the one about good old Fred? No? All right. So good old Fred had been a faithful Christian his entire life, but now he was in the hospital near death. So the family called their pastor to stand with them. And as the pastor stood next to the bed, good old Fred's condition appeared to deteriorate quickly, and he motioned frantically for something to write on. The pastor lovingly handed him a pen and a piece of paper, and right then and there, good old Fred used his last bit of energy to scribble a note. Then he died. The pastor thought it best not to look at the note at that time, so he placed it in his jacket pocket. And at the funeral, as he was Finishing the funeral message, he realized that he was wearing that same jacket that he had worn on the day at the hospital that good old Fred had died. And he said to those listening, You know, good old Fred, he handed me a note just before he died. I haven't looked at it, but knowing Fred, I'm sure there's a word of inspiration in it for us all. So he opened the note in front of everyone and he read it aloud, and it said, You idiot, you're standing on my oxygen tube. <laughs> <laughs> we got at least one one couple laughs out of that here, but um all right. You know, one of the one of the key things to being a, a good preacher is being a good observer. And as a preacher, I like to look around at our world in wonder and marvel and observe and ask lots of questions. And like many of you these days, I'm doing lots of observing from afar. I'm seeing all that's happening in various parts of the world from my phone or from my computer screen, and even for things taking place here on our island. Since I'm relegated to my home, I'm still viewing them like you from a distance. This past week, as you may be aware, lots of discussion was taking place about our rights and our freedoms as Americans. That's come to the surface. And so lots of this conversation is orbiting around the governor of South Dakota, who has taken a strong stand that the government has infringed upon American citizens' rights. And whether one agrees or disagrees with her, unfortunately, and due to the lack of mandated social distancing procedures, South Dakota has now become a hot spot for COVID-19. Nevertheless, the debates are still raging, and people are asking whether the government has overstepped its bounds. Has it reached into our lives too far? And in doing so, has it violated the Constitution? Is the government impinging upon citizens' rights and freedoms? And are there ulterior motives in the government's actions? Should we be worried? So this is a timely, hot-button issue in the United States. And while we're on it, please let me remind you, please, the United States Constitution is not Scripture. It is not divinely inspired. It is not a God-breathed text. So, as a Christian Christian, Be careful not to fall into the trap of making an idol of it. I hope none of our bridge people are doing that. Um, I I hope and pray for that. But anyhow, as I was saying, all of this talk about rights and the Constitution has become central for a moment. And and I want to suggest to you that, that while the surface level discussion is something that's generating a lot of heat and argument, that there's something more going on below the surface. And I think that for us Christians, being able to recognize that that deeper issue is important. If we can understand and explain it to others, that's even better. So before I can get to the bigger point, I need to introduce you to a theory from the world of the social sciences. It's called face theory. And once you get a handle on face theory, you'll be able to see clearly what's really going on below the surface with these discussions and arguments about freedoms, rights, and the Constitution. Face theory was introduced by a researcher named Irving Goffman. And as this theory has grown and developed, it's understood to have four important parts to it. I want to share those parts with you, but first let me give you a definition of face theory. Let's deal with the word face first. When we use phrases like save face, What we're really talking about is saving our self-image. We're we're talking about face theory when we do that. So face theory is the theory that all people have a public self-image. And they want to claim that public self-image for themselves. And that public self-image is just shorthand called face. So you could almost use face uh, in a way as a synonym for social standing. So here are the four parts of face theory. First, that word public. That's important. Face is public in the sense that it involves us in relation to others. Our public face is what we want others to think of us. It's a sort of self, mental self-image that we have of ourselves and that we want others to see. Second, because face is public, it's also social. Uh, if others don't pick up on our self-image by the ways that we look and speak and act, then we actually have no face. We, our social standing, like we diminish our face, we diminish our social standing. And this leads to the third aspect. Right, um, Face is something that we claim. And sometimes we detect people putting on a front or trying to be someone that they're not. And we perceive that they're trying to claim status that they're trying to save face, that they're trying to sustain face by the ways that we live and act. And fourth, we all want face. We want people to, to see us how we want to be seen. We don't want people to misunderstand or think of us in a light that we don't want to, that we don't desire or want to be seen in. So that, that should all make sense, hopefully. Now, Here's a really interesting thing about face theory with regard to the fourth point, right? Researchers, they've they've argued that there's a positive and a negative aspect to face or face theory. Really, uh, face wants is what they call them. Face wants. So a positive face want might be something like being accepted, wanting to be accepted, or wanting to be welcomed, just as we are, as ourselves, so, that we don't feel the need or the desire to put up a front or to change or to act. That's positive face. We, we want to be accepted. Negative face wants, on the other hand, they, they deal with our rights and um, respect. And we, we believe that we automatically um, deserve these rights and deserve these respect. And so, positively, we might say to someone, I like being accepted by you and negatively we might have to say if you don't value my rights and and respect me and my rights then I'll resent you and that's a lot of what's going on right now below the surface in all of this discussion about rights and about freedom you have one group who's focusing on positive face wants They simply want to be accepted and affirmed by society. They want to maintain their current face, their current social status or current social standing, their current face. They don't want to be socially ostracized or looked down on. And so they go with the flow and they affirm the societal norm. And then you have the other side who's sort of focusing more on negative face once. They, they're contending that their rights are being violated, their rights are being infringed upon, and as a result, they feel they're losing some power or some status or some privilege, some face. And they're feeling, a lot of these folks, like they're being treated like little kids uh, by the government, and they resent that. They feel they aren't being trusted by the government, and they resent that. Their face before the government seems marred. And disrespected, and so you see, every time, every single time that we interact with another person or post on social media, that we're, we're engaging in face. We're enacting our public self-image, and whenever we meet, we talk, we share, etc. We're engaging in face activities. Face theory is happening, and as a result, every single interaction that we have, we either maintain our current face, it'll increase our face or decrease or threaten our face. And I first encountered Irving Goffman's work over a decade ago while I was doing research. And this week, as I was thinking about these current issues, I found it immensely helpful to to revisit this work and to think of things in these terms and within this framework. But I went back to a conference paper that I had written back then, about a decade ago, where I was interacting with Goffman's work and was reminded of the title of it. The title of it was A Face is Like the Outside of a House. A Face is Like the Outside of a House. It was a paper I gave on the Apostle Paul, but this title comes from a quote from someone named Loretta Young. She said, A face is like the outside of a house. And most faces, like most houses, give us an idea of what we can expect to find inside. That's a great quote. Hear it again. A face is like the outside of a house. And most faces, like most houses, Give us an idea of what we can expect to find inside. So this morning, as we prepare to turn to our focal passage, Revelation 7, 1 through 8, I want us to keep this concept of face in mind. It's very, very important. There's a sense in which Young's remark, a face like the outside of a house, is similar to what we encounter in these verses, and I'll I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. So let's turn uh, to these verses and consider Revelation 7, 1 through 8. Here's what the text says. After I saw this, I saw, or after this, I saw four messengers standing upon the four corners of the land, clinging to the four winds of the land, in order that the wind would neither blow upon the land, nor upon the sea, nor upon every tree. And I saw another messenger coming up from the east of the sun, having a seal of the living God, and crying out in a loud voice to the four messengers, to them to whom it was given to do injustice or devastation to the land and sea, saying, Y'all neither do injustice to the land, nor to the sea, nor the trees, until we shall seal the slaves of our God upon their foreheads. Could also be servants of our God upon their foreheads. And I heard the number of those being sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Out of the tribe of Judah twelve thousand had been sealed, out of the tribe of Reuben twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Gad twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Asher twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Naphtali twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Manasseh twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Simeon twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Levi or Levi twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Issachar twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Zebulun twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Joseph twelve thousand, out of the tribe of Benjamin twelve thousand, had been sealed. All right, so this is some great stuff in these verses. So let me draw your attention to several things. First, I have a question. Based on the last couple of sermons, who do you think the title Four Messengers is referring to? Now, if you said Four Horsemen, you're not on point, but you're warm. If you said the four living creatures, you nailed it. And of course, the four living creatures are the bride of Christ, the church. So that's the first thing I want to draw your attention to. The four living messengers are the four creatures. Just being described differently, they are the church. And if you're really dialed in, verse 2 is significant because uh, it begins by mentioning the other messenger or another messenger. And as we've seen all throughout Revelation, the messenger is who? The Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is the messenger, and now the church is being described as the four messengers, this is suggestive of the church being filled with the Holy Spirit. They both bear and bear witness to the same message as the Spirit. Christ is the bridegroom longing for his faithful bride's fidelity. Now I absolutely love this. Of course, in these verses too, uh, we read about the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. In these 12 tribes, as we know, they represent God's people before Christ those faithful Israelites who will be grandfathered or grafted in, so to speak. The other half, of course, is the 12 apostles who represent um, all those faithful believers during and after Christ's life. The 12 leaders of the 12 tribes, along with the 12 apostles, when, when all taken together, they, they, they comprise the 24 elders. Right, and these twenty-four, they seem to be, uh, in their totality, figureheads for the whole bride of Christ. The hundred and forty-four thousand includes all the faithful from the tribes of Israel. And now, all these numbers—they're just symbolic, right? We we don't take them literally, like Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and, and others have done. They're symbolic, and you got to be comfortable with that symbolism. They're meant to represent peoples and groups. Right? There's not going to be only 144,000, so you got to embrace the symbolism, because if you don't, you're going to come up with very wild speculations and ideas about revelations. So many people have done that, and I don't want any of you all to do it. I don't want any of you all to fall prey to that. Now, I want us to consider a couple more important things from these verses. You'll notice in verse 3, the comment, Seal the slaves of our God upon their foreheads. Now, I was just reading this week that some company has microchipped their employees so that they can enter doors and walk up to snack machines and wave their, their wrists and buy snacks with those microchips embedded in them. And while that's kind of creepy, it's not what Revelation is talking about. So don't even go there. Resist the urge to go there. Resist the urge to entertain those wacko ideas. That, those wacko ideas, they don't even exist in Scripture. They don't. They just don't, period. Let me explain to you with a cool, calm, and level head what's going on in the text. To get this, you need to understand a little bit about ancient culture rather than modern culture. And what we need to do is know that in the ancient world, face, as I was talking about earlier, face was an important social construct. It isn't very different from how we understand it today, but it's a little different. The forehead in antiquity was the outward expression of the mind and that's easy to get right because the forehead sits right in front of the mind think body language y- you can tell if you're looking at my face and forehead when I make certain gestures right when I make certain gestures you can tell by looking at my forehead what I'm thinking the ancients they knew this too you could read a person's forehead so the forehead was a representation of what's happening or going on in the mind A representation of what someone was thinking. But here's a very important point. The mind was thought to be the same as the heart. The mind and the heart were one and the same. And I know that seems somewhat odd to us today. But it wasn't to those in biblical times. In Exodus and in Deuteronomy, God tells the people to write commands and laws on their hearts. That's interesting because not on their minds. And we encounter the the same sort of thing in Proverbs and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In Romans, it's actually God himself who writes on people's hearts, writes the commands and laws on the hearts. And we see that too in 2 Corinthians and in Hebrews. To the Israelites, the heart was the seat of the mind. And thus, the heart and the mind were intimately connected. And we, we could even describe them together as the heart mind or the mind heart. So in Daniel 2.30, we find this interesting phrase, know in your heart. We, we kind of say that same sort of thing today. I've heard many preachers say that sort of thing. Um, so it's linking the heart to knowing, to know in your heart. It's an explicit heart-mind connection. And in Psalm 32.11, we find the psalmist talking about the knowledge or reason of God's heart. The knowledge of God's heart, the reason of God's heart. Again, you notice that heart-mind connection. So to, to get this whole bit about being sealed on the forehead, you need to know these things. Again, it isn't talking about like being microchipped or any, anything like that. So I want to walk through this again. First, the heart and mind were synonymous, or at least very closely linked in ancient thought. Two, the forehead was the outward representation of the mind, or better yet, the mind-heart or heart-mind. And three, someone's face, uh, part of which is their forehead, can tell what's going on inside them. So you recall that quote from Young that I gave earlier. A face is like the outside of a house. And most faces, like most houses, give us an idea of what we can expect to find inside. So here's something to ponder. Can someone look at you and know that the Spirit of Christ resides in you? I don't simply mean when they physically look at you. I mean when they look at how you live, when, when they look at how you talk and act and think and feel and do business, behave, the things that you engage in. Can they look at you, your life, and tell that you're Christ's? Can they look at you and tell that you're devoted as Christ's bride to your bridegroom? Can they, can they look at you and tell that you're faithful to that marriage covenant? With Christ, can they can they tell and do they know that you are a Christian, a Christ follower, a follower of Christ? I want to offer, based on these verses, a trait uh, that I think will help others identify that in you and me. So let's revisit verses two and three real quick. It says this, and I saw another messenger coming up from the east of the sun, having a seal of the living God, and crying out in a loud voice to the four messengers, to them to whom it was given to do injustice to the land and the sea, saying, Y'all, neither do injustice to the land, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we shall seal the slaves of God upon their foreheads. What are we to make of the Holy Spirit giving uh, those to whom is he indwelt or those whom he has indwelt the opportunity to do injustice, to devastate the land and the sea. How's the Holy Spirit giving us injustice to do? How do we make sense of that? How's he giving us devastation to do? Well, this brings us to our word of the week, antiphrasis. Antiphrasis is a speech or literary device in which you say one thing, but you mean the opposite. It's kind of like sarcasm. So if you think someone's going really slow and you say something like, oh, just take your time, right? By doing that, you're, you're not actually in- encouraging them to, to be even slower. You're being sarcastic, and it's a way of telling them go faster by saying the opposite of go faster. Or if someone's wrong, but, but they're insisting that they're right. You might say something like, oh, of course you're right? Right? And they're going to pick up on the sarcas- sarcasm. Uh, you can say, oh, of course you're right. You're, you're never wrong. But you actually mean the opposite by that. That's antiphrasis. Antiphrasis is often sarcasm. You, you, you can think of a bunch of these probably because most of you are sarcastic. Uh, I know all of you. Um, if, if you haven't hung out with my wife, she's, she's like the queen of sarcasm. Uh, so you can pick up some good sarcasm from her and have fun with that. Uh, if something tastes bad, right, uh, you want to be, oh, this tastes great. Or you could be a smart aleck about it. You, you get the point. You do all sorts of sarcastic things. Um, antiphrasis. Oh, Michael, you sound so smart when you say words like antiphrasis, right? Could be a sarcastic thing. Uh, Antiphorasus. You're, you're saying the opposite. You're meaning the opposite of what you're saying. So that's kind of what's happening in these verses with the comment on devastating or destroying or doing injustice to the land and to the sea. The Spirit isn't telling them to literally go do those things. It makes no sense. He's actually meaning the opposite. Go devastate the land and the sea in its current state. Now follow me here. Go and devastate the land and the sea in its current state by healing it. That's what he's meaning. Hear me when I say this. One of the greatest traits of Christ's bride is being a devastator, being a disruptor, an innovator in the face of injustice, a change agent to injustice and in the face of injustice. Think of it this way. Our world is full of hatred and we can disrupt the hate by bringing the peace of Christ. Our world is full of pain and suffering and we can disrupt it by bringing healing, and the people who are are inflicting the pain and the suffering, when we disrupt it, that's getting, they're going to think that's inju- unjust of us, unjust of us. But we do it anyways. In other in other words, we devastate this world literally uh, by literally destroying its lies, destroying all of its deceits. And as Christ's bride, we're called to 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 destroy and devastate, but not with fighting. Physical fighting, not with fists and not with bombs and guns and knives and pain and suffering. We're called to destroy and devastate by proclaiming the gospel of the Prince of Peace and living that out. We're called to be peacemakers to be change agents of peace. We devastate and destroy this world's ways with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. We devastate and destroy by having in us the fruit of the Spirit. We devastate and destroy by holy living and holy moments. And so friends, I I want you to know this morning that God is pleased when we devastate the world and its ways with his holiness. God is pleased when we refuse to succumb to the ways of the world and instead commit to his ways. This week I was reading a portion of St. Augustine, one of St. Augustine's sermons, and it just hit me. I want to share this with you. It's a sermon where he's discussing the story from Mark 4. You know, the story where Jesus boards the boat during a storm, or a storm happens later, and he's sleeping down in the bow of the ship. And Augustine said this, "'On hearing yourself insulted,' You long to retaliate. But the joy of revenge brings with it another kind of misfortune, shipwreck. Why is this? Because Christ is asleep in you. What do I mean? I mean, you've forgotten His presence. Rouse Him. Then remember Him. Let Him keep watch within you. Pay heed to Him. A temptation arises, it's the wind. It disturbs you. It's the surging of the sea. This is the moment to awaken Christ and let him remind you of those words. Who can this be? Even the winds in the wave, even the winds and the sea obey him. And a friend say that when he gets worried or panicked, he often thinks of this very passage and prays, wake up Jesus. And we can take Augustine's words to heart, friends. We need Jesus to be awake in us. When we feel afraid, let's Call out to ourselves in the Jesus in us. Wake up in me, Jesus. When we're anxious, wake up, Jesus. When we're, when we're worried, wake up, Jesus. When we're overwhelmed, wake up, Jesus. Unsure, wake up, Jesus. Scared, wake up, Jesus. Hurting, wake up, Jesus. Right. Too many times we've let Christ fall asleep in us. We need to remember to wake that sleeping giant within us and take that three-word prayer and plug it into our lives. Wake up, Jesus. When we have someone wronging us and don't know what to do, wake up, Jesus. When we lose a loved one, wake up, Jesus. When we're sick, wake up, Jesus. Let's not let Jesus remain asleep in us. We should desire a Christ who's always wide awake within us. Wake up, Jesus. That's our prayer. And at the Bridge Church of the Nazarene, wake up, Jesus. We're gonna say that. We we long to carry out this vision of yours. Wake up, Jesus. We long to reach out to Foster Village. Wake up, Jesus. We want to see broken souls come to you. Wake up, Jesus. We want to serve our kapuna. Wake up, Jesus. We want our youth to bloom into gospel-shaped people. Wake up, Jesus. Wake up. Jesus. You know, another thing that, that I'm seeing people talk about right now is whether God is judging us with this virus. Is, is this God's doing? I've talked a little bit about this. I mean, honestly, there's a long track record of this kind of talk and this kind of thing. I've touched upon it a few weeks ago, um, that this is not from God's hand. This is this is from fallen humanity, a fallen world, fallen creation. And God is not a deity, right, who is unjust. He's not bloodthirsty. He doesn't have an itch to dole out violence, us, and, and wait for it, he expects the same from us, his bride. Instead of imitating violence, the church is to confront it with the gospel and allow the gospel to have its way. And as a result, the faithful bride doesn't resemble the poser bride whose lust for sin and whose obstinance blinds her to her need for God. The true bride is filled with the Spirit, and all her actions point others to the Father and Son. And when this occurs, all three members of the Godhead are pleased. Too much damage has been inflicted and done in the name of Christ. Too much violence has been waged in the name of Christ. Too much evil, hatred, anger, deep-seated pain have caused people to live in ways that are destructive to the gospel. And as the faithful bride of Christ... May we live in ways that reduce suffering and bring peace to our land. Let us devastate sin. Let us devastate fallenness with holiness and aliveness. And part of that may mean that we need to wake up to an image of God Himself as healer, redeemer, peacemaker. Blaming all this on God, that's just lazy. It's irresponsible theology. So we need to avoid that. We need to not buy into that garbage. And that's one way to cultivate goodness, truth, and beauty during this time. Here's something else that I want to suggest to you. And I'd like all of us bridge folks to be on the same page. I'm begging you to get on the same page with me for this. I really want to challenge you with this. I hope that you'll commit to doing this with me so that all of us at the bridge will be a peculiar people during this time. I want to ask you to fast for the next 43 days. That is, up until the start of Pentecost. This is a different kind of fast. It's not a food fast. It's a fast from politics. For the next 43 days, as your pastor... I'm asking, I'm challenging, I'm begging, I'm pleading, I'm calling you to fast from politics. Don't read politics. Don't engage in politics. Don't discuss politics with others. Don't post on politics. Just avoid politics. You don't even have to do anything. You just don't do something that's engage in politics. 43 days, 43 days, that's it. An Eastertide fast from politics politics. I urge you to do this. It might seem odd to do it at this time and in these unusual days but I think that's all the more reason to do it and I hope that you'll join me in that. I'm going to do that. Here's something else that you can do to begin cultivating goodness, truth, and beauty. Crafting your testimony. I've posted all three steps on our website on how to do that. I also encourage you to do small things. Write your mailman or mailwoman a letter. Someone gave us that idea a few weeks ago. A letter of gratitude. Uh, The person at the grocery... Uh, maybe buy their some of their groceries or all their groceries pay for someone's gas at the gas station buy a meal for those behind you in line say thank you to your doctor nurse or ems person that you know in fact if you wouldn't mind i'd like everybody to join me right now i want to to give a clap i know we can't hear each other but for everybody who's serving on the front line so those of you here with me you can clap and everybody else where you're at clap with me Thanks to our EMS nurses, doctors, all those folks. Um, We we appreciate that. They deserve it. So let's let's do things to become an anchor in our community and draw people to Christ. And so as I begin to come to a close here, I want to say this. Before all this COVID-19 stuff, I said that I believe the gospel is even more powerful than COVID-19. And I still believe that. In fact, in the last sermon that I preached when we were together at Radford, I made that point. COVID hasn't stopped us. We're finding ways to beat it, uh, ways to overcome it, ways to work around it. We've, we've been flexible. Even as a church, we've been super flexible. Um, and so before all this, I was sharing often about our three-year vision at the bridge to reach out to Foster Village. That hasn't changed Sure, we're having to shift gears a little bit, but that's fine. But the vision hasn't changed. And what I've learned is that we, as the bridge, we're pretty flexible as a congregation. We're not landlocked. We're not building locked, which has been somewhat of a blessing to us. We're not tied down. We're not burdened with a certain mortgage payment, right? So that, that flexibility is, I believe, one of our greatest strengths, one of our greatest assets. And my hope is that even when we do begin a meeting in person together again, that we maintain this mentality, this flexible mentality. Let's remain flexible. Let's allow space for lots of creativity, um, for, for doing things differently. Let's be open. Let's be open to reconceiving even what meeting in person might look like for us now. Uh, and, and how we can both broaden our reach and deepen our reach into the community. I'm going to share some ideas uh, in the future, things that are, I, along with our board members, have been discussing and dreaming and praying about, and I hope that you'll get on board and support those initiatives, initiatives uh, when they come to the surface. Listen, friends, we're surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. We, we, we need to know how best to go to them and how best to have them come to us. But all that requires Jesus being awake in us, wake up Jesus in us. Wake up, Jesus, in our families. Wake up, Jesus, in our workplaces. Wake up, Jesus, in our friendships. Wake up, Jesus, in our finances. Wake up, Jesus, in our spiritual growth. Wake up, Jesus, in Foster Village. Wake up, Jesus, in Honolulu. Wake up, Jesus, in Oahu. Wake up, Jesus, in these Hawaiian islands. Wake up, Jesus, amid all the hurts. Wake up, Jesus, amid all the brokenness. Wake up. Don't remain asleep, Jesus. Wake up in us, Lord. Wake up, Jesus. Wake up. Amen? Amen. Well, with that, brothers and sisters, I want to offer a benediction. So if you would, uh, turn your palms upright and receive this charge. And now, may the Lord Jesus wake up in you and may you rouse him to action. May he stir your heart and may he kindle your desire to share the gospel and may he cultivate goodness, beauty, and truth within your mind heart. May it be. Go in peace, brothers and sisters. Amen.